Welcome to this edition of the Digital Foundation Podcast. My name is Simon Allen, and I'm joined today by Scott Payton, who's based in Tokyo and is the lead of the newly formed iMasons Japan local chapter. The time zones meant we couldn't find a time to suit London, Tokyo, and Miami, where my wonderful co-host Carrie is based, so I'll be flying solo on this episode. iMasons recently held our first Japan chapter meeting, when I learned the information communication technology, ICT industry, it's the largest industry sector in Japan, and Japan has more cloud-ready Fortune 500 businesses than any market outside the US. It's a significant market that's attracting a lot of international attention, and I know our iMasons community will be interested to learn a little more about this dynamic market. I can't think of anyone better to provide that insight than Mr. Scott Payton. Scott, welcome to the Digital Foundation Podcast. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me here. You're very welcome. Scott, I can tell by your name and your accent that you're not Japanese. Would you mind giving us a, a kind of potted history, where you're from and how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a long and, and strange journey, but my critical systems infrastructure background really started um, with U.S. Air Force, where I, I worked in uh, the ICBM missile field back in the late 80s. And when I left or the, the Air Force four years later, one of the things that I remember sticking with me at the time was they said, the downside to this career field is when you leave, there's nothing like it on the outside. And so for about a decade, I, I kind of, you know, I took that to heart and said, yeah, okay, there's, no, there's nothing like this. I was living in Phoenix working for uh, American Express at the time. And I, I recall sitting in uh, this, this cafeteria hearing this conversation. And, and when you've got a military background, certain words can, can really trigger you know, responses in you. And I wasn't paying any attention to the conversation. And I heard the word uptime. And it's kind of, you know, you just lots of noise around you and you hear this word. And then a few seconds later, I heard the word availability. And all of the hair on the back of my neck stood up because I'd never heard those two words used in the same context outside of the you know the 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 military and then few slow pay seconds after that i hear the word mission critical and at this point i i must have looked like some sort of crazy man because i spin around to these guys behind me and i'm like what are you talking about and they look at me a bit crazy and they're like the data center and i'm like what is the data center and they're like it's the big building across the parking lot that has no windows in it and, and this was around 1996, right? So I, the, I don't think the, the uptime hadn't actually published their first version of the white paper that is now the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the tier standard topology. But so, so how to make these resilient and how to make data centers work and how to keep them running at that stage was, was still in its infancy. And the conversation with these guys very quickly led to the notion that I had a pretty advanced background in this space because that's exactly what you know what we did. And essentially, for those who may not be aware, the reality is a, a missile site is really just a data center. And the difference is is that instead of you know Facebook or or Amazon Web Services, our application at the center is is the missile. But everything else in a site is essentially the same. So we have the same objectives. We we have the same purpose. We need to keep the thing running all the time. It has to work rain or shine, you know, storms or 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 whatever can happen. And so you need all these systems that are fundamentally identical. You know, they're just they're a little more serious in their in their application than than most in Japan, which I, you know, as I, as I, I've been now for 16 years. 
when I first arrived here, it was interesting because I heard a lot of people talking about hardened data centers. And for a year or two, I heard people throw this term, or, term around. And, and one day I asked somebody, I said, when you say hardened data center, what do you mean by that? And they're like, you know, it's it's a facility that's got good, you know, good distances set off, some bollards around it and deflections for things like blasts and that sort of thing. And I said, oh, right, because in my background, hardened mint can take a direct hit from a one megaton nuclear warhead and continue to operate. So we had this sort of gap between <laughs> what we were considering, you know, hardened data centers versus what I consider a hardened <laughs> facility. But again, the, the objectives are very, very similar, right? Sure. The, the, the notion sure. is you want this thing to work all the time. You you want it to be reliable and you you want things going on around it to not interfere with, um, you know, with what it is. And that's communications, it's power, it's cooling, all those same issues, right? Absolutely. So, so this, this strange background that I had never expected to apply to anything else, suddenly a decade later was very front and center of what I was doing. And, and from that point onward, I've been essentially involved in the data center world. And what was your first job in the data center world? And how did you get to Japan? Well, the first job, I suppose, was really, again, even with the American Express, and I was I was running international voice systems, and we were we started implementing those systems into data centers around the world that we had. So in, in the UK, in Japan, in Australia, in Hong Kong, in just all over, I, I think I had nine or 10 markets, South America. So that was my sort of introduction to both the international world and to the data center world at the same time. So I started out as basically getting a little corner in in them and placing these systems in and then working my way in, in through that. You know, I, I wound up in more senior roles and, and having responsibility for data centers and technical, you know, to, uh, IT infrastructure and a whole wide range of things. That eventually led me to Australia. And uh, uh, from from there, I ran some some fairly large organizations. And then I got recruited in 2005 by a group while I was in Australia to come to Japan to do data center design and development because the industry here was just bursting at the seams. And, and strangely, we're encountering a similar surge in that, as we saw in 2005, in, in this year. So that's that's a strange one because it's it's been brought on partly by the pandemic on two fronts. One, the massive demand for, you know, for data center services um, ha- has just gone crazy with everybody working from home and the need for more bandwidth and better services and 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 you know and then just the, the streaming entertainment the things that have all kept us you sure. know happy and sane in, in the process of that and and also by the fact that Japan has been isolated fundamentally for more than 18 months now then no one has been allowed into this country that's not already a resident or a citizen. So mm-hmm. the, the industry is dying to get in. A lot of people are dying to get in at the moment, but there's a massive shortage in, in capability in the country. And who are the big players, the big cloud players, big colo players in Japan? And what does the international landscape look like? I've heard that Equinix are, are a big player in, in Japan. Are there any other international players? And do you see the international investment in Japan increasing? There are. That's a huge question. So let me try and take that take that apart, Simon. Um, there are a lot of, of players. I mean, virtually all the usual suspects are here, and the ones that aren't are trying to get in, right? So Equinex, you're right. They were one of the early early footholds here. In fairness, I mean, 
they've been around for for quite a long time. They were well established even when I arrived. I think in in 2005, I think they already had TK one and two were already there, and and they were working on three. And I think they they closed that one just about the same time I got here, early to late 2005, early 2006. But you've seen many of the other players here, and 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 Japan themselves become international players. I mean, you've got NTT globally now, and I mean they've swallowed up a few other places as well too, like the mentioned data. Uh, you've got you know KDDI, which uh, branded across the world is is better known as Telehouse. Sure. So you, you know you've got Telehouse in UK, you've got them in Hong Kong, you've got them in other locations as well. You've got Digital Realty that have made their way in in the in the last few years. Have some have some big sites in um, Osaka and, and Tokyo. More recent players, you know, in the region, especially regional players, Air Trunk have have uh are building a massive campus in in um one of the areas of japan that's become very very popular just outside of tokyo called inzai it's kind of halfway between the main international well what was the main international airport um narita and and tokyo and then everybody and their brother at the moment otherwise is is trying to to enter this market from from europe from the from the us from from asia australia lots of players entering the market very interesting. You know, you mentioned Telehouse. Telehouse was the first purpose-built data center in Europe back in the late 80s. I think that might have been pre-KDBI, though. I'm not sure. Interesting. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. 30-odd years ago as well. Okay. Well, right. I don't think there's any point in asking what the drivers for growth are. I think we're all familiar with those. But what would you say would be the, the obstacles for growth in Japan, if there are any? Well, growth- because, yeah, the, the, the big the big challenge in Japan is land and power, right? So so everybody one of the one of the things that has has restricted a lot of you know a lot of people from being able to enter this market has has been that coupled with you know just the the cultural barrier. I, I won't say language is one thing, but the cultural barrier is actually bigger than the language barrier. I mean, I, I've been here for 16 years, and my my Nihongo, which is you know the the Japanese word for the Japanese language, is terrible. I speak menu and taxi. <laughs> but I've managed to do quite quite well here because I can eat and still get home. Um, I managed to do quite quite well here by by you know understanding in my space. I generally don't try to attract specifically go after Japanese business. I go after you know international and multinational you know entrants in, into into the country, and so they generally come to to us because. We don't speak Japanese, but we can interface well with it. And sure. I found over the years that you know that the, that the cultural nuances are far more important than than just the language itself. Sure. Um, Quite recently, one of our partners were were had big ambitions to grow in Japan, and they the, the biggest barrier they've discovered was was talent. They were really struggling finding right. bilingual, experienced people in Japan. Right. And so that's the second piece or that, you know, that I alluded to earlier as well, too, that the industry at the moment here is growing faster than the existing cap- you know, than, than capability exists. Right. And that's 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 sort of you know, been in flux a bit. It's, it's shrunk and grown and shrunk and grown over the last you know 15 years with all the strange influxes of things like global financial crises. And, and Japan had a you know major crisis in 2011 after you know, the Fukushima. Fukushima yeah. Yeah. And power has, you know, power was really strained in the country at that stage. So a lot of a lot of planned stuff was was shelved until they'd made it past that. And we're sort of, you know, we're past that point now, but power is still a big struggle. And of course, you might have noticed that in Japan, 
we occasionally have these things called earthquakes. And so land is also, you know, a, a bit complicated because sometimes you find a place that looks great. You see, everything seems to work out really well. And then you do a land survey and you find that it's really sitting on top of a, you know, a significant fault or the liquefaction, um, you know, issues are, are really big and you could build there, but it's going to cost you an enormous amount. I mean, this is one of the things I always tell people, I can build you a data center anywhere, right? Yeah. I put it on the moon if you can get connectivity to go between the two. The question is, is how much do you want to pay to mitigate the, the risks and hazards that that, you know, actually actually brings with it. And that, that's another thing that no matter where you build here is, is going to be more expensive. I think one of the, one of the shocks that a, lot of, that a lot of companies find is that, you know, they, they come in thinking they're going to, two things, they come and think they're going to build the same way they build everywhere else. And mm. that becomes problematic. One, because especially if you want to attract hyperscale clients, you have to build your buildings with base isolation. And that's an expensive proposition. You probably add 60 to $100 million in the building cost, you know, just for just for doing that, that piece of it. And then the other part of that is the process that is used here is different than I we find it in almost there are a few other places in the world where we see a similar process, but but not very many. And you know, I, I consult with the ex you know with, with externals trying to come into the country all the time. And one of the things we tell them is we can do it this way. But you're going to wind up adding significant costs, 25, 30% more costs to your data center, and your timeline is going to get extended by six to 12 months. So you can either work with the system or you can work against it. But if you want to work against it, it's it's going to cost you. And sometimes they listen to us and sometimes they don't. Now, Scott, am I right in saying that the Fukushima disaster in 2011, no data centers actually went down? They all continued operating. That is correct. And in fact, in Tokyo, the I mean, there was there were power outages as a result of the quake and, and resulting tsunami across the country. But in Tokyo, the there were almost there was almost no power loss at all. And and what was out wasn't out for if I remember, I'm going off the top of my head here, so somebody mm-hmm. you know can can beat me up for it later. But I, I think it was not less than or not more than 20 minutes. And, and and less than like five percent of areas were impacted by it. So the the power in Japan, in fairness, is probably the single most stable, despite all the quakes and everything, is one of the single most stable elements of of this country and of any country in the world. The power systems are just nearly faultless. I mean, they just march right on. In in, in two thousand eight, I was here, and we had a power outage that lasted for about around about an hour for about 75% of Tokyo. It was the first outage that had exceeded 20 minutes since the end of the Second World War. Good heavens. And so it just it just doesn't happen. And, and this was an event where there was a there was a big crane on a barge on on one of the major rivers that broke loose, floated downstream, collided with the high, you know, high, high tension power distribution, I'm talking like 120,000 volt plus. And knocked everything out for about, you know, depending upon where you were, from 15 to, to 50 minutes. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday or something. Good grief. And of course, if you consider that in the light of the, the power issues experienced in Texas this year, I know it, it's it, it's quite sobering, isn't it? It really brings it yeah. home how important infrastructure is, power infrastructure, certainly. And here in the yeah. UK, we're looking at potential issues as we lead up to Christmas. One of the big interconnects with France uh, 
suffered a very serious fire. Mm-hmm. That's of great concern for a lot of people in the UK at the moment. Uh, anyway, Scott, this is just so interesting. Thanks so much for giving and sharing all this really insightful information. A couple of questions for you now. I'm going to put you sure. on the spot slightly. If somebody was to ask you that the growth you anticipate in digital infrastructure in the next five years and the next 10 years, so would you anticipate a, a growth in five years of X2 and in 10 X5, or do you think a faster growth than that? Just a I think feel. it's going to be... Yeah, it's 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 going to be faster than that, Simon. Just just given the number of of players, I mean, I have almost on a weekly basis an RFP coming coming across the desk for you know response to design a data center of forty to sixty megawatts, and <laughs> you know, and they're all. I mean, nothing gets nothing here is now being built under forty megawatts. That that would be the smallest DC you'd, you'd build in in this in this country. So, and, and because there's so much demand at the moment and there's so many people trying to get in at the moment, when the borders are open again, there will definitely be a flood. So two times in the next few years is, is under, you know, is, is undershooting the goal. Five times in the next five years might, might balance or, or might level off. But, you know, it's hard to say as well too, you know, it, it, there's, there's so much advancing and, and we're, one of the interesting things, we're only starting to see, I mean, just the scratch of a surface of 8K TV. You know, some of the world is just starting to get adopting into 4K, but 8K is, is right behind it. The first 8K transmissions or, or broadcasts were done during the Tokyo Olympics. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be 2020, but it was, it was this year. Those broadcasts still went forward at 8K. That just takes a massive amount of bandwidth. I I don't think most people can comprehend how much it it really does require. So if you think, you know, 700 meg is, you know, it's a lot of data to move for a two hour movie at 720p, you know, you start moving a a movie at 8K and you're talking 100 gigabytes. Sure, sure. It's big. So any idea what the penetration of 5G and edges across Japan? Yeah, there's a lot of movement in this. In fact, one of the interesting things is if you look at um, Rakuten, they have a, a massive 5G deployment across Japan, and and they've 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 kind of turned the industry on its ear. When you look at Edge, I think a lot of people thought you know 5G was was really going to be the thing that pushes Edge. Edge is definitely coming. Don't get me wrong on that one, but the way that they've done their their 5G deployment, I think they were 18 months ahead of their of the plan schedule because Amazing. of the, the that they went uh, rolling this out. And 5G is available in in a lot of of areas at this point. I mean, still fledgling on the devices, and nobody really knows what they're going to do with it yet, other than it's faster. But there's going to be so much more that comes out of that than just an increase in speed. In the same way that 4G was more than an increase in in you know sure. in in speed. I mean, smartphones are here because of 4G, right? So if you're making another leap in platforms. There, we're barely starting to see what that's going to be like. Having such a big ICT sector and anticipating so much growth, do you anticipate any innovation coming out of Japan that we could expect to see in the next 12, 18 months? You know that's a that's a really interesting question. I'm sure there I'm sure there will be a lot. I mean, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand about Japan is, I mean, when I got here in 2005, I'm going to backtrack just a tiny bit here on you, Simon. When I got here in 2005, I moved from Australia and and I was living in you know I was living in Brisbane in Australia and 
My internet connection, for example, was an ADSL connection. That was a 1.5 megabit connection. By today's standards, you can almost type faster than that. Not quite, but when I got here, <laughs> the minute I moved into my apartment here, I had 100 gigabit. Uh, sorry, sorry, I had 100 megabit connection, right? So 100 meg connection already in 2005. And within about, I think it was three years, I had a gigabit connection into my apartment. $50 a month, gigabit, bi-directional speed on you know direct fiber connection, what they call FTTH here, right? Uh, fiber to the home. Mm-hmm. Was, is available everywhere in Japan. I mean, everywhere in Japan, let alone Tokyo. And there are, there are service providers here that are offering, you know, three gig internet connections at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, and even those, those, those came about two or three years ago. So the, the, the availability of connectivity in Japan is supposedly only rivaled by, you know, Seoul and Korea. I've been to Seoul. I, I, I didn't see it there. And, and then strangely, Auckland in New Zealand, and there's a weird reason behind that, but you, you have this massive amount of, of fiber is common here. You can, you know, and I've, you know, I had this gigabit connection, you know, to the house, unlimited data, bi-directional speed at $50 a month. And this is back in 2009, right? 2000, yeah, back 2009. So, so only four years after arriving. So, so, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation if the world will, will look at that and pay attention to, you know, the, you know, the importance of that. I, I think there's some, you know, there's, there's some great lessons to be learned here and how they've done their fiber deployments, some great lessons to be learned here mm-hmm. and how they're approaching their 5G deployments. And, and it's just, it's, it's going to be phenomenal in the next few years. Yeah. I'm, I'm convinced you're right. So, Scott, you've spent 16 years in Japan now. What's it like living in Japan? What advice would you give for anybody who's thinking about moving there? Don't hesitate. Just just come and never leave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to put this into context, you know, I, I mean, I, I've lived in 10 countries in, in my life. I've worked in more than 40. I've visited more than 70. I've been on every continent on the planet, including Antarctica. And so when, when somebody asked me, what's the best place in the world? My, and my answer is, is Japan and Tokyo in particular, that that's, that's not said lightly. This is, this is not, I lived in Cleveland and I lived in Missouri. This, and, and, you know, and one of those is better, right? I don't want to, I don't want to upset anybody from Cleveland, Missouri, but I, I lived in Missouri. I never lived in Cleveland, but so when I when I make that statement, it's it's not trivial. Uh, you know, I've 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 lived all over the world. I've I've been all over the world. I've seen you know uh, more of it than the great explorers have seen. And for me, Japan is definitely home, despite my my language you know barrier being being pretty terrible with with menu and taxi. It's still just an amazing place culturally. It's an amazing place. You know, centrally as well too. I mean, it's it's such great access to 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 Asia and North America. Not that difficult even for South America and, and the UK as long as you don't mind fourteen hour flights. Sure, you can still get there. <laughs> so I mean, it's 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 a brilliant it's a brilliant spot. It's just 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 spectacular. It sounds amazing, amazing, and it's been amazing chatting to you for the last twenty odd minutes. It's been fascinating insight. You're clearly the right person to to be uh, sharing this the, the, these insights. Thank you very much. And oh, before we sign off, the next Japan chapter meeting will be on February the seventeenth, twenty twenty two, of course. And we're hoping, fingers crossed, 
it's going to be in person. So thanks again to Scott for leading the chapter. And thanks to all the people who are involved in the chapter already. If you'd like to attend the next chapter meeting, we should be posting it on our event page, hopefully sometime in December. And thank you very much for listening to the Digital Foundation podcast. My name again is Simon Allen. If you'd like to learn more about the Infrastructure Masons, hopefully join, go to imasons.org and you'll be able to connect, help other people in our community grow and give back. Thank you. Thank you.